Bienvenidos and welcome to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza, produced by Vanessa Bohm, Julieta Kusnir, and Nina Serrano. Tonight's program features news sin fronteras with Vilma V, an update from Brazil's World Cup, an interview with Jasmine Lopez on the Urban Lactation Project, a conversation with Anne Cervantes and Desiree Smith about the formation of San Francisco's Latino Historical Society, a poem by poet-educator Harold Teresón, and Musica, Musica, Musica. Listen and enjoy. We begin with the news. This is Velma V with Noticias Sin Fronteras, news headlines without borders from America Latina for the week ending June 22nd. ID, lawyers for plaintiffs attempting to sue the United Nations for the outbreak of a Haitian cholera epidemic allegedly caused by UN peacekeepers experienced a victory of sorts last Friday when they were able to personally serve legal papers on UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon. UN officials contend that the agency is immune from such a lawsuit. However, Stanley Alpert, one of the plaintiff attorneys, stated, quote, This is a significant development in the fight to hold the United Nations responsible for the tragic events in Haiti, end quote. El Salvador, former Minister of Defense Jose Garcia and former National Guard Director Carlos Vides, who were both granted asylum in the United States after fleeing from El Salvador, are facing deportation back to El Salvador following hearings in U.S. federal court that found them responsible for at least 11 human rights atrocities that took place during El Salvador's civil war from 1980 to 1992. Both men have filed appeals to challenge their removal orders. Mexico. The governor of the Mexican state of Michoacán, Fausto Vallejo, resigned last week, two years ahead of his term's expiration. Many activists and organized groups in the region, including members of various auto defensas, had called for his resignation as the state of Michoacán continues to experience escalating violence from the global drug trade. Argentina. The government of Argentina, led by President Cristina Fernández de Kirchner, continues its battle with investors who refused to take part in comprehensive debt restructuring for Argentinian debt that took place in 2005 and 2010. The bondholders won a court victory last week when the U.S. Supreme Court refused to revisit the case that ordered the Argentinian government to pay the full value of the debt. Fernández de Kirchner stated that her administration was willing to negotiate with the, quote, vulture funds, end quote. Canada. An expert tribunal gathered earlier this month in Montreal for the first ever Permanent People's Tribunal or PPT session on Canadian mining. Its preliminary verdict held that, quote, the Canadian state has failed in its obligation to protect human rights, particularly those related to Canadian mining companies, end quote. The tribunal took two days' worth of testimony where serious human rights violations were connected to the operations of Blackfire Exploration in Chiapas, Mexico, Exelon Resources in Durango, Mexico, Tahoe Resources in Guatemala, Gold Corp in Honduras, and Barrick Gold in Chile. 75% of the world's mining companies are registered in Canada. The full PPT verdict will be released next month and can be found at tppcanada.org. Colombia 
The United Nations annual report on refugees reports a sharp increase in the number of displaced people and also revealed that over half of those displaced are children. The report finds that civil wars have forced a record number of people, over 50 million worldwide, to flee their homes. The UN report states, quote, the 2013 levels of forcible displacement were the highest since at least 1989, end quote. The top three countries with displaced populations are Syria with 6.5 million people, Colombia with 5.3 million, and the Democratic Republic of the Congo with 2.9 million. The changing flows of the displaced population reflect a changing pattern of war, which has shifted from nations fighting each other towards internal warring factions vying for control within countries, often with foreign assistance of both money and weapons. This has been a summary of some of the latest news headlines from America Latina. I'm Vilma V for Noticias Sin Fronteras and La Raza Chronicles. If you have a news item that you would like to share or have us track, email us at larasachronicles at kpfa.org. Lumbra luna, 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 que ya me voy pa la montaña. Alumbra luna, 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 que ya me voy pa la montaña. Llevo en mi mochilón, café y canela. Llevo mi corazón, pa' mi cajela. Llevo en mi mochilón, café y canela. Llevo mi corazón, pa' mi cajela. Y también llevo mi guitarrita para entonarme una buena cumbia. Y también llevo mi guitarrita para entonarme una of the World Cup ends this Thursday and so far everything has gone better than expected. Of course there are many flaws. Chilean fans managed to bring fireworks into the stadium though they are supposed to be prohibited inside the arenas. And 85 Chileans were detained for trying to invade Maracanã to watch their national team play Spain. But as the New York Times pointed out on June 17th, the problems are, quote, smaller hiccups, unquote. Brazilian and international media predicted a month-long nightmare, and the World Cup is far from being that. The Spanish daily El País concluded that the predictions about a Brazilian apocalypse were mistaken. Once the ball started rolling, only a few strikes happened. Bus drivers crossed their arms in Natal two weeks ago, but we haven't faced any major problems. It is true that Sao Paulo had its third biggest traffic jam in history when the Silicon played Mexico on the 17th. But the game did not happen in Sao Paulo, so the World Cup infrastructure was not to blame. The explanation for the giant traffic jam was employees were let out early to watch the game and the whole city decided to drive home at the same time. On the streets, the World Cup has finally conquered fans' hearts. Reports coming from all the 12 host cities are of peaceful interactions between foreign fans and locals. The English invaded Manaus for the first round match against Italy and were well received by the Amazonians. The same goes for Colombians in Brasilia and Minas Gerais, Mexicans in Fortaleza and Argentinians in Rio. 
In Sao Paulo, the Bohemian District's Villa Madalena has street parties every time there is a game at the Corinthians Arena. Last week, it was Uruguay against England. This week, it's Chile and Holland. But not everyone is pleased. Villa Madalena residents are complaining about the noise and claiming the neighborhood is not prepared for such large gatherings. There are no public bathrooms nearby, so tourists relieve themselves on the streets. City Hall said that portable chemical toilets will be available on the streets from now on. Provisions about chaos in airports were also wrong. Although not all the renovations were finished on time, such as the ones in Minas Gerais, teams and tourists have not faced any problems arriving in Brazil and traveling inside the country. Delays have been below the world average, by the way. And, of course, there's football. Yahoo! UK said that this is already the best World Cup ever. The historic goal average is helping. It is the highest since 1958. In 2014, you're guaranteed to see at least 2.94 goals in a game. If you were lucky, you cut France beating Switzerland by 5-2 or Holland punishing Spain by 5-1. Countries like Costa Rica, Colombia and Chile are surprising fans and experts. They left traditional teams behind and managed to qualify for the 16 round. Giants like England and Spain are out of the tournament. So far, the World Cup has been almost perfect for Brazilians, foreign fans, teams and the government. The game is shining bright and helping to put the hiccups in the background. The first phase ends this week. That means 16 teams and their fans will leave Brazil. We can say the biggest test is almost over and that Brazil is passing it, although not with a perfect score. For KPFA's La Raza Chronicles, this is Diogo Antonio Rodriguez from Sao Paulo, Brazil. to La Raza Chronicles, Cronicas de la Raza. We have in the studios with us today Jasmine Morelos. She is the founder of the Urban Lactation Project, and she is here with us today with her daughter, and she's going to talk to us a little bit about this project. Thank you so much for joining us, Jasmine. Thank you. Uh, yeah, you can hear my daughter in the background. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you introduce her so our listeners know? Um, Azul is a 14-month-old toddler, She is my inspiration for this project, so she goes with me everywhere. <laughs> so that's a great place to start. So even though this is a really important public health issue, social issue, it's an issue that's affecting people across the world, why has this been an issue that you've decided to dedicate so much time and energy around? Well, there's two two main reasons. The first one is I'm actually doing my graduate uh, culminating experience about this. Um, so it just coincided that I also had a negative experience when Azul was about five or six months at the DMV. Uh, an employee told me that I couldn't sit there and breastfeed her, that I needed to go to the car or go to the bathroom. And it was really offensive. Like she said, it was nasty and that I was being offensive to other people and that she just wanted to protect them. 
So because I had already decided that this was the project that I wanted to do for school, I knew that I had rights. But that's when I actually realized that if a woman was not informed, you know, she might be dissuaded from actually continuing breastfeeding. And that's where the real drive for all this project began. So this project began through your personal experience and your own connection through what you experienced as a woman who was breastfeeding. So for a lot of people listening, maybe they haven't gotten all the information that's been coming out lately. So why is it so urgent, so important for women to be able to breastfeed whenever they need to? Well, the thing is, breastfeeding is really important. And it's something that throughout the world, the formula companies and other factors, you know, it's not just that, have been diminishing the numbers of women who decide to initiate as well as continue The World Health Organization and UNICEF actually recommend exclusive breastfeeding for the first six months, uh, then with complementary foods up to a year. And the actual recommendation is that they suggest that women should breastfeed all the way up to two years. It's a really small percentage. Uh, Just women that reach the exclusive six-month mark is... I believe is 16.7%. So the numbers are really, really below what doctors and World Health Organizations would like them to be. It's a really important thing because they have been seeing a correlation between different diseases with babies like diabetes type 2, as well as diarrhea, ear infections. Kids are more prone to get leukemia. So there's all these different correlations that they've been seeing, also childhood obesity. So if we as a society can do something that doesn't really cost us anything, you know, for the benefit of our children, I think that a lot of things would change, you know. I mean, and there's other things that go along with it. Uh, There's also less pollution when we breastfeed, so there's no containers. There's less medical expenses that the government or our pockets need to deal with. Breastfed babies tend to be healthier throughout their childhood and adulthood. Breastfeeding is also really important because it helps both the baby and the mother. Post-birth, the breastfeeding helps shrink the uterus back to its original size and at a quicker speed. It helps reduce blood loss. It also helps expel the placenta faster. In some cases, it helps women lose weight back to their original size. In my case, that didn't really work, you know, but (laughs) but I do know a lot of women (laughs) who it has been beneficial in that sense. Um, It also decreases the chances of getting breast cancer and ovarian cancer. That's just a small percentage of the things that I can actually mention, you know. But those are some of the most important things that a lot of campaigns are um, wrapping themselves around. That's the voice of Jasmine Morelos. She is the founder of the Urban Lactation Project, and she's going to tell us a little bit more about that project. But first, we're going to continue to dig into some of the many benefits of breastfeeding. So you've mentioned a lot of the health effects in terms of the preventive factors that breastfeeding can connect to and how it can help women and babies stay healthy and young children stay healthy. So tell us about any of the social impacts in terms of relationship between child and mother or family relationships or any other positive impacts beyond the physical health factors. There's a lot of research that states that there's a higher bonding between mothers who choose to breastfeed because they actually have to take the time and sit down and breastfeed. And regardless of whatever they need to do or they think that their priorities are, when you breastfeed, you do need to stop everything. Your baby will not allow you, not even to be on the phone. Um, So one of the things that happens is that you end up spending more quality time with your child. But there's also been other research that indicates that mothers who formula feed can also spend other quality time with their kids. 
So um, you've brought up the issue of formula. And as we all know that there are a lot of women that are unable to breastfeed and it's something that formula can be incredibly important for them and an important part of their process of keeping their child healthy. You mentioned earlier that the formula companies are actually a big factor when thinking about the lowered rates in developed countries in terms of breastfeeding. So can you tell our listeners a little bit more about why that's the case and also what that looks like? How does a formula company get between a mother breastfeeding her child? Well, actually, they're all over the place in both developed and underdeveloped countries. And it's bigger urgency for underdeveloped countries to return to breastfeeding because there's more mortality rates, infant mortality rates. But the formula companies spend about $50 million in ad campaigns just in the United States per year. And they have an average of 2.5 ads of, I think it's like the, the same four major companies you know, per parenting magazine. So they're all over the place. Going back to the origins of formula feeding, when it was first created, it was meant to be used only in exclusive cases when it was infant children that were orphans or for whatever reason the mother couldn't feed them or adopted children. After that, they saw a market in it and they used the women's movement, believe it or not, as a tactic to turn women into consumers. So they started throwing a whole bunch of different campaigns when women were fighting for the right to vote and for other equality rights. They started telling them the formula was going to make them independent and that they were going to have more time than they could ever imagine. So they were using the social movements for their favor, you know, in their favor and and taking advantage of it. So a lot of women saw formula as a break away from the duties associated with anama de casa. Housewife? Uh, yeah, housewife. So then from that, the doctor started to see a business in it too. So they started associating with different formula companies. And that's when the distribution of free formula samples started happening throughout all hospitals in the United States. Another thing that happened too is that before the 1900s, men took over maternity health issues. So they became the authority for women's bodies. And it's not that they knew better, but it was just something that society enabled them to. So they started saying that formula was the American way of feeding babies, that it was better than breastfeeding, that it had more nutrients, that science was better. And they started recommending more formula to their patients. And as that was going on, they also started diagnosing more women with insufficient milk syndrome. So insufficient milk syndrome, they've discovered that it's a psychological state because there's only about 5% of women throughout the whole world that cannot physically breastfeed. So a lot of the challenges that happen with women who think that they cannot breastfeed, that they have insufficient milk, um, are more psychological. And it, it comes from a lack of support. I can actually identify with that, too. I was really lucky that my daughter was born at San Francisco General Hospital, and that's a baby-friendly hospital, which means that they have an initiative that they want more natural births, they want more women breastfeeding, and they'll try anything in their power to make this happen. So for me, it was a difficult process too, being able to lactate. Um, it took me about five days and my daughter was losing a lot of weight and I was about to purchase formula, you know, and just start feeding her. But I was lucky enough that I had access to a lactation consultant and she examined me and she said, no, you're, you're fine. You know, just she's like within 24 hours, <laughs> your milk is going to come down. And she was right. You realize how much you distrust your body based on all these formula 
companies telling you that this is easier, you know, that it's healthy and that it's a really good alternative to breastfeeding. And you start doubting yourself as a woman and like your abilities to be able to breastfeed. And as soon as uh, an expert told me that I was fine, you know, my milk came down within 12 hours. <laughs> so that's when I, I, I realized that whatever I was reading, you know, about the psychological state of insufficient milk syndrome was really true. <laughs> I mean, sometimes we don't wait those five days because we're scared and it's it's reasonable and we're scared that our babies are going to starve to death. And it's very understandable. But I mean, the whole process takes time, you know, and that's some of the information that we don't have available. And that's some of the information that formula companies have been really fighting to get rid of. So going back to the formula companies, it's really interesting. There's an international initiative that was founded also by UNICEF. It's part of the Baby Friendly Hospital Initiative. And they require all hospitals that participate to purchase their own uh, formula paraphernalia. So they're trying to separate formula pharmaceutical companies with the hospitals and maternity. Here in the United States, it's not really being followed. Uh, there's only 115 hospitals that do this throughout the entire country. And even though that leading health organizations such as the American Academy of Pediatrics receive a lot of money from formula companies. So even though they're telling you, oh, we need to raise the rates, you know, this is really devastating. Um, there's thousands of children that are getting sick. We can save so many millions of dollars per year if we can only start having more women breastfeed. Then you find out that they receive millions of dollars for the construction of their own uh, facilities. Um, like the American Academy of Pediatrics received more than $50 million from the pharmaceutical companies for their building in Illinois. Or then you find out that they receive grants or, <laughs> or that different health organizations are receiving research grants and money and scholarships for their students, you know, and that the pharmaceutical companies are paying for their conferences. And they're just embedded in so many different things. You know, John Hopkins University of Medicine is one of the most important ones in the United States. They actually are very aligned with the pharmaceutical companies that produce formula and they have sponsored different TV shows that lead people to believe that breastfeeding can cause infant mortality, that kids can starve to death, you know. So you see how they're connected and how they're working together and how formula it's really a business and they're not really there to care about the future of our children, you know, and unfortunately, not a lot of women know this. And a lot of women have conflicting issues with just the thought of breastfeeding because it is time consuming. It's a lot of effort. And I'm not going to lie, it's been difficult. There's been a lot of challenging moments. And I completely understand women who stop breastfeeding because it's it's not easy. It's not easy at all. And it also requires for you to be able to spend more time with your child. That means that sometimes you don't work or sometimes you don't get to do some of the other things that you're you were used to doing, you know. We have here in the studio Jasmine Morelos. She is the founder of the Urban Lactation Project, and she's been breaking down some of the factors in terms of some of the ways that formula companies get in the way and make it harder for women to breastfeed. Unfortunately, Jasmine, your project was started because formula companies are not the only thing keeping women from breastfeeding. There are also a lot of other factors in terms of thinking about safe spaces, places that are comfortable and accepting and, and also encouraging women to be able to breastfeed. So can you talk to us about some of the other factors that also make it harder for women to breastfeed? Um, yeah, the, the, what you just mentioned is another key factor, having self-shame. There's another thing that has happened in our Western society for 
I think over like seven decades where breasts have become sexualized. And that's very unique to Western society. With that, that also created a stigma around breastfeeding in public. And a lot of women started feeling shame and not just feeling ashamed, but being put to shame. So women stopped. And you stopped seeing examples of other women breastfeeding because although breastfeeding is something natural, it's also a learned behavior. So you need to be able to see other women doing it and you need to be able to be around other women that can tell you what the process is. And if you don't see that, then it's, it's a deterrent. So uh, the Urban Lactation Project, that's what we mainly focus on. Thanks to my thesis project, I've been able to learn about the different factors, but ULP is just focusing on the public experience. I want all mothers to be able to feel comfortable breastfeeding in public, and I want people to understand the importance of it and that it's not something sexual, that it's far from being something sexual, and that it's something very necessary for a society in general. Uh, My partner and I and the twins that are here in the studio too, they've been helping me throughout this entire endeavor. And we've been doing photo shoots of women breastfeeding at Golden Gate Park, at a coffee shop, at a restaurant, inside of the Muni too. We did a photo shoot inside of Muni, even though Muni wanted to charge us, but (laughs) Uh, we just decided to to do it. You know, I mean, so many people take pictures and it's really important. We think that it's really important. So we went ahead and, and did a photo session in there, too. And just different locations where we know that women have been harassed, not specifically in that place, but it's symbolic. And we're going to blow this up and we're going to have an art exhibit in August. And there is a call out to artists. It's still open. Uh, It ends at the end of this month. But if anybody is interested and they know that they are going to submit something, they can just shoot me an email and I'll give them an extension, you know, however long they need, as long as it's done before August. So far, I have work from Puerto Rico. Some beautiful... Some beautiful watercolors from Puerto Rico. We're getting some pictures of women breastfeeding in Ecuador. We've also received some work from Tijuana and from San Diego, uh, some local artists from Oakland and San Francisco. Uh, Nina Serrano said she was going to be doing poetry, too. We also have Maria Loreto, who is also a, a mom who has breastfed her child for an extensive period. Actually, she is my inspiration because she was the first woman that I ever saw breastfeeding and being proud of it. And that was way before I got pregnant. So I'm really happy that she's participating. There's also going to be a panel of speakers. We invited people from WIC to come and talk and distribute information about the resources available. There's going to be a couple of lactation experts from La Leche League, San Francisco chapter. I also invited a couple of moms to come and talk about their personal experiences and the things that they've had to endure, both positive and negative. There's going to be some other surprises that I'm not going to go into detail, but other installations that I really hope will get people thinking. There's braver women than me, and I know that, at least for me, it's been a difficult experience, and it's been very, very, very challenging, you know, and there's times where I've been ashamed of breastfeeding, and I try to cover up, you know, and if, if it's not for the support that I've been receiving from people around me, you know, the where they tell me, hey, this is normal. I want this to be significant for everyone. One of the things that I can mention about the exhibit is that I'm placing a clothes line with clothes pins so women can come and hang their covers. 
For me, this is a symbolic rupture with the status quo, you know, and um, I'm going to be taking mine because I purchased mine before Azul was born. And then I realized that she didn't like it and I felt uncomfortable, you know, and that I didn't need to use it. So it's been a long process, you know, and I hope other mothers can see it that way, too, that if they purchased it, you know, and they're still using it to come and hang it, they don't need to cover themselves. You know, they don't need to feel ashamed for just providing something so basic, you know. That's the voice of Jasmine Morelos. She is the founder of the Urban Lactation Project. She will be sharing all these incredible photos and different kinds of exhibitions. What date and where will the event be, Jasmine? If there's two events. The opening is on August 16th. It's a Saturday and it's uh, it's going to be at 518 Valencia, the center, the Eric Casada Center for Politics. Political Education. Political Education, sorry. Uh-huh. Yeah. No problem. And then the closing event is going to be on the 23rd, which is another Saturday. There's also going to be a couple of musicians and other little things. And so how do people send you photos if they want to be a part of the exhibit? How do they connect with you? Actually, the easiest thing is to look for Urban Lactation Project on Facebook or Twitter. Um, and they, if they don't have those type of social medias, then they can send me an email to jasmine, J-A-Z-M-I-N, at urbanlactationproject.org. And then we can just go from there. And Hasmin was actually breastfeeding during this interview, so she's <laughs> practicing what she preaches <laughs> right now. So um, what else do you think is important? If we have listeners that are outside of the Bay Area, a lot of our listeners are in Central Valley, up north in Sacramento area, etc. If they can't make it down, but they think this project is really important and they want to support and learn more about everything that you've gained through all this research you've done, how can they plug in? Well, there's going to be a second phase to this. We're doing a website, and hopefully that can be an extension that people can use in their own cities. The website is going to be a resource similar to Yelp. It's going to be a place where people can go and review their experiences, whether they're negative or positive. Although there's a federal law that protects breastfeeding in public, still negative experiences that happen, you know, and I think that if we can keep track of those negative experiences or positive experiences, it can hold people accountable. That's the voice of Jasmine Morelos. She is the founder of the Urban Lactation Project. She makes video and she's a photographer and she's been doing work in the Bay Area for many, many years documenting incredible music and social movements. And she has dedicated herself to this really important project. So thank you so much, Jasmine. We really appreciate your time and we look forward to seeing the exhibit. And we encourage everyone to submit anything in terms of either photos or art related to breastfeeding. Music, poetry, spoken word, whatever they want. Thank you. Thank you. Por eso es que se aprovecha.
This is Nina Serrano for La Raza Chronicles. I have in the studio a very interesting guest, Anne Cervantes. She's an architect with the San Francisco Latino Historical Society and working with the San Francisco Heritage Society on developing a project documenting Latino contributions to the development of the city and county of San Francisco. Bienvenidos, Anne, to La Raza Chronicles. Thank you, Nina, for inviting us. I'm so glad you're here. We want to hear all about about this project because it links to the most important moment that we're at now, which is the elimination of the Mission District as we've known it as a Latino neighborhood. So why don't you begin at the beginning and tell us how your group came together? A lot of it was influenced from my father, who next month is turning 88, and he was captured in the invasion of Normandy. And his brother fought for rights in Houston. He was one of the founders of LULAC in Houston. And my father had this love and still has this love for history. And he documented and he would recite. He had everything to memory. It was that who inspired me, but also the fact that I worked with Mission Girls in San Francisco. And I saw all these young ladies. It was a mentorship program. It still is in existence. Didn't know who they were. And they were being treated like recent immigrants. I knew that the history of San Francisco, that it had a long history of Latinos contributing to San Francisco. And so with that, with the recent displacement and having the knowledge that we've been displaced from North Beach because of the Broadway Tunnel, Latinos have been displaced, the community around the Bay Bridge with a building in 39 with a bridge. And now there's a lot of displacement in the mission and people just don't understand what a tragedy it is to the families that have lived there for 30 and 40 years and longer. We have legacy families that have been there over 50 years. Some of them renters, some of them property owners, and some of them have been cheated out of their property with not knowing English, and the real estate people are just not behaving well. Well, actually, San Francisco began as uh, began as a city. It was already Mexican land. Yes, and a lot of people don't know that when the lands were secularized, in the 1830s that the city grid was set up based on a a Mexican plaza in Varias, which was the land measurements of the Spanish and the Mexicans. So Portsmouth Square was once the seat of the Mexican government and the transitional government and also a Mexican plaza. People don't know that. People don't know the fact that there were Latinos for a long time in North Beach. One of the first Latinos living in North Beach when the lands were secularized was Juana Briones, who was considered the founding mother of San Francisco. And there was about in the late 1830s, there was a group of Portuguese, Spanish, and Mexicans who gathered money to build the Church of Our Lady of Guadalupe, which was the center of Latino community there, both businesses and everything. And with when the borders changed, it stalled the building of the church, and the church eventually got built, but then was destroyed in the 1906 earthquakes. A lot of people don't know that Chileans and Peruvians were here long before the 49 strike hit that brought a lot of the miners up here. The gold rush. Yes. And they were merchants traveling uh, back and forth from Peru and Chile up to San Francisco and trading. People don't know that history. They think we're all recent immigrants, but we're not. We have a long history in contributing to San Francisco. So what is your group trying to do, and how did it get started? What was the impulse? Well, I attended a community meeting where the planning department was reaching out to do historic resource report. 
and there was just hardly anybody. It was held in the mission, but hardly any Latinos were attending. And I knew that from my involvement in the community for the last 30 years, that the whole heart of the Chicano movement was there and happened on 24th Street. The whole labor movement, Cesar Chavez, connection to the labor movement, all happened. The Sandinista Revolution, yes. the support for El Salvador, everything exactly. happened there. Yeah. So it wasn't in their report. And that historic resource survey was required in order to do the rezoning of the mission. So that's how it got started. And we looked around for a nonprofit organization to apply for the funding for this project to document this history. And the first one was with Dolores Community Centers, but at the time, Erica Sada was in bad health. So one of our founding board members, Ellen Martinez, suggested that we talk with San Francisco Heritage to work with them and be our physical sponsor, but it's turned into more than just a physical sponsor. It's more like a partnership. And so what are you doing? What is the project now? Right now, we're documenting from indigenous period, from the Oholonis to current history. And that's part of our project. We had the first community meeting with elders, where the elders told their history. One of them being Gloria Ramos, who was the first woman architect, Latina architect, to graduate from UC's Berkeley School of Architecture and become an architect. And she's lived both in North Beach and in Bernal. And she talked about her struggles in moving around. Francisco Complice, who graduated from Stanford and has an incredible knowledge of the labor movement from the 30s on, and he told his stories, as well as Jim Salinas, who's an active labor leader, and his mother came from El Salvador alone and raised him. He was born here in San Francisco and loves San Francisco. So that was our first community meeting. The next one will be having August 9th. Where will that be? At City College of San Francisco in the Mission District, 1030 in the morning. And what we'll be doing is doing oral histories as well as having people come and bring images that they want to put in our collection of history. So there's going to be scanning of historical documents. And where we're going to be putting all this information is we're doing a partnership with the San Francisco Library with the director, Mr. Herrera. Can people just come or how are you reaching people so that they'll know to come and bring their photographs and bring their we're memorabilia? We're going to do it through press release, but our team is an incredible team. We have Dr. Cordova, who is the lead historian. His specialty is in Central American history. We have community outreach. We have Oscar Grande from Poder, and we have a research assistant who's Alejandro Rios to Dr. Cordova. And it's a, a great project because we keep uncovering new resources, new maps. So if people would like to come to this, could you tell us exactly where and when in the time? It's a Saturday. August 9th, Mission District Campus on Valencia at 10.30 in the morning at the Margaret Cruz Community Room. And that's at San Francisco City College. Yes. And how are the youth working in this project? Well, they're being exposed to a profession that hardly any of our community knows about. It's a historic preservationist. And 
And there's very few Latinas that have that history. I think my associate Desiree Smith is probably one of two Latinas that I know that have degrees in historic preservation because there isn't a school here. They have to go back east to USC or to University of Arizona. And I want to make sure that there's youth getting exposed to this profession in historic preservationists. For many years, I've been an advocate for Latino businesses in order to empower our people. And this, I think, is incredible. I fought for a lot of our team members to be there because I think the right people are our own people telling our history. And so that gives them another added venue to another part of their profession. So this is very important. You know, there's preservation architects, there's preservationists that just do archaeology, all of this that people in the National Park Service, these are the requirements to be employed in that arena. Well, it also sounds like really interesting and fascinating and important work that people might really get a lot out of. I think it's great. I think in talking to Alejandro Rios, he is right at the point of choosing graduate school, and I think he's going to go off to look at historic preservation. And it's because of this project that we're able to steer people in these careers. We're being joined in the studio by Desiree Smith. She, too, is part of this historical work. Tell me about your piece of this project. Um, well, I work with San Francisco Heritage. We're a nonprofit organization dedicated to preserving and enhancing San Francisco's architectural and cultural identity. And we've been really pleased to partner with the San Francisco Latino Historical Society on a series of projects, one of which it was the Calle 24 Cuentos del Barrio project, which we worked on uh, last summer. We invited a group of about 15 high school and college students to participate in oral history interview training. And also they heard presentations from various community leaders and they spent the summer conducting oral history interviews of community leaders involved with different businesses and nonprofits and movements, festivals and events on 24th Street in the Mission. And have they stayed involved in the project, these youth? Yes, yeah, some of them have stayed involved. We presented a, a walking tour of 24th Street as part of the Sunday Streets program last summer and some are continuing to work with us on a new initiative this year. So their skills have had a chance to develop, and they must be very good now at interviewing and yeah. getting the stories out. Mm-hmm. And, and we actually hired um, one of them, Alejandro Rios, to work with us on a new project that we're working on this year, um, the San Francisco uh, Latino Historic Context Statement. And how do you see that this relates to the evictions that are happening and the relocations of Latinos in the Mission District? Well, I think all of these projects are meant to highlight the the long legacy of Latinos in San Francisco and most recently in the Mission District by kind of tying back the history of the Latino legacies and the community that has been here for decades and really trying to preserve that cultural memory um, and also hoping to build the case for policies and, and planning efforts to help keep the community there in the mission that people that want to stay there and also help preserve some of the living organizations and businesses that are that represent the Latino heritage in the mission. Well, thank you, Desiree Smith, and thank you, Anne Cervantes. And if anybody would like to bring their voice to this continuing history of the Mission District, the meeting is going to be, would you tell us again, Anne? It's August 9th at City College's Mission Campus on Valencia Street at 1030 Saturday, August 9th. Thank you both. Muchas gracias.
This is Nina Serrano for La Raza Chronicles. I have in the studio today the poet and educator Harold Teresón. I invited him today because I was so excited when I heard his poetry at a reading in honor of the Salvadoran poet Roque Dalton. Harold, welcome to La Raza Chronicles. Hello. Thank you for inviting me today. It's a pleasure to have you. So I'm going to read the one that you heard me read before, and it's after Roque Dalton. You, Roque, only you. Roque Dalton is the national poet of El Salvador. Yes, he is like the epitome of poetry in El Salvador. Like every Salvadoran poet either has heard of him or has read them and always seems to live up to him. And this is actually the way I envision him growing up in Los Angeles as who is rocket to me in L.A. You are the rocket toasted and grinded of my horchata. You are the sweet rocket whose crumbs I lick off my plate with each sip of Nescafe. You are the rocket melting through my every maze, pour sizzling on the grill like my great-grandparents' whispers. You are my plate of rocket fried, annoyed with beans and cream before mass every Sunday. You are the quintessence rocket loving underneath the ruin in which we fell in love with. 
You're the most saddest roque of the roques in my garden. You're the roque that punts and shoots the rose in my heart. You are once, twice, three times a wet roque, and I love you when we are together in Guatemala, Mexico, or Arizona, the moment shared with every border crossed. You are the roque I trust in, blood of suffering people who implores me, begs me, and orders me to stop the repression. You are the son of the gay roque, manifested in my language forgotten. You are the roque that rocks my street with swollen beats and black-eyed rhymes. You are the roque I will build dreams, tragic nails will not puncture. You are the roque of the Pacific that awakens the American dream. You are the roque that battles my tendency to define myself as a nation. You are the roque that battles my tendency to define myself as a nation. You are the roque that invites the embracement of all atoms battling inside me. You are the roque deferred, festering like a sagging source set to explode. You are the hidden roque, broken, exiled in a revolution's thighs. You are the hidden roque, broken, exiled in revolution's thighs before returning home. You are not my first roque or my last Wester to say, you're the rocky ocean stepping out of my dream and into my 1993 Camry XL. Yes, I'm talking to you, Roque. You're the very kinky kind of Roque you don't take home to mother. You're the magical Roque ready to reverse the conquest back to its origins with bicycle kicks, jukes, and tricks only to be massacred when we step onto the fields again. You are the roque man, roque man, can do whatever a roque can. Spin a web in disguise, break a jail any size. Look out, here comes the roque man. You are the only roque, and alone in loving you and reciting your name in all times of the night, I forget I throw myself to drunkenness and perdition. You just heard Harold Teresón reading his original work.
You've been listening to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. If you'd like to hear this program again or share it with your friends, you can go to kpfa.org. Remember to like us on Facebook for information on past and upcoming shows. Stay tuned next Tuesday at 7 p.m. for La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. Hasta la próxima.